It's May 21st, 2020. This is Rook. were to ask you to take a guess at what unites the Iranian diaspora more than anything else, what might you say? The Persian language? Noruz festivities? Gugush karaoke? How about food? That's right, khorak. Cuisine, cooking, kubideh, keshmesh, kuku, kashkib, bademjun. Don't forget the dul. Today our guest is a star chef who was born in Iran and now has eight international culinary gold medals to his name. He's also a master of French cuisine and joins me to talk about the food business in the era of COVID, the simplicity of local, and the trick to a perfect fesen june. This is Conversations From, To, and About the Iranian Diaspora. This is Rook. Welcome, welcome to episode number 11 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. I'm joined by, uh, across the glass, I'm joined by Reza. Hi, Reza. Hello, hello, Gian. And Shia. Hello. It's an exciting day because we have an extra microphone now on the other side of the glass. So Uh Reza and Shia are not passing the mic back and forth whilst maintaining social distancing, but they are on their own respective microphones. This is progress. It is, isn't it? Even if they're not very good microphones (laughs) that we've given you two. Actually, it's good. It's SM something. Oh, I thought it it looks like an SM78. Not an SM78. Oh, it's it's Beta 57. uh, That's what I meant. Yeah, people have no idea good. what you guys are talking about. I have no idea what I'm talking about apparently either. <laughs> I, I have several I just concert with this mic. So oh, yeah. okay, Shia. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting a little defensive. <laughs> it is a good mic. <laughs> so that's not your accent at all. I'm sorry. I you, you can only do one accent, can't you? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. It's, it's a, a mixture. Generic. It's a it's a mixture of uh, an Iranian guy and Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it not. is a good mic. <laughs> Traditional. It's sort of a, yeah. That, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, actually, I can do very accents very well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I just, um, just not right now, apparently. Listen, today, uh, we're going to play the first of our theme song submissions. So oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I put a call out to people to say, would you... Uh, would you like to, if you're a musician or an artist, try doing our theme song, the song we just heard, uh, in your own style with your own instrument or whatever? We got some submissions, so we're going to play. Maybe we'll get to a couple of them. We'll get we'll play at least one of them. Uh, that's a little later in the show. And also, we got so much feedback from the Hamed Nick Pei interview uh, earlier this week. Um, he was so open. He was so um, graciously candid in that interview. A lot of people have... Uh, written us about that. We will get to the letters of the week later in this episode, and we've got some um, interesting music for you at the end of the show as well. But first, our special guest today. The history of Persian cuisine stretches back over 2,500 years and has influenced many, including the Arabian, Moroccan, North Indian, and Turkish cuisines. It combines the savory flavors of fresh herbs like rose petals and mint with spices like saffron, sumac, and turmeric, and merges them with the sweetness and tartness of pomegranate, barberries, and grapes. As those in the Iranian diaspora well know, the repertoire of Persian cuisine presents fragrant, diverse, and highly refined dishes which are created by complex culinary techniques. Well, my guest today is an influential chef based in Vancouver who is a master in combining the heritage of Persian cuisine with influences of the Pacific Northwest and French cooking. His creations have given birth to a unique contemporary approach that has catapulted him to award-winning status. 
Hamid Salimian was born in Iran, grew up at the edge of the Caspian Sea, and learned about traditional Persian cuisine amid his parents' citrus orchards and on the family dairy farm. As a teenager, his family moved to Canada, first to Ontario, and soon after to Vancouver, where he would enroll in culinary and pastry arts at Vancouver Community College, graduating at the top of his class, of course. Throughout the years, Hamid has held leadership positions in the prominent kitchens of British Columbia and has been recognized for his innovative approach. He holds eight gold medals in national and international culinary competitions and has been the coach of Team BC and the Canadian team in culinary competitions around the world. Hamid was voted the best chef in the city by his restaurant peers in 2013 in Vancouver and has received the Georgia Strait Magazine's Mentorship Award as part of the publication's 2016 Restaurant Awards. Right now, Chef Hamid Salimian joins me from Vancouver, Canada. Hello, sir. Hello, hello. Oh, my God, what an entrance. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, it's uh, such a pleasure to have you on mine. the show. <laughs> pleasure is mine. Thank you very much. You know, I was thinking where to start with you, and I, and I was thinking you and your your <laughs> wife are both chefs. So let me start with this: What did you eat for dinner last night? How how fancy <laughs> is how fancy is your cooking at home, or is it just for show at work? And then you rely on boxes of mac and cheese at home. Yes, uh, it, um, uh, it it actually goes both ways. I mean, we do a lot of takeouts. Not gonna lie to you, um, especially if we work uh, both of us working really late. However, we do try to cook as much as possible, especially um, in this pandemic it was happening. We are cooking a lot, and um, and I'm loving it. And I'm cooking a lot of Persian food. I'm cooking other kinds of food, and uh, we take turns, right? Uh, mostly I do lunch, and uh, sometimes I do dinner, but mostly she does the dinner. Last night um, uh, we had some uh, spashkov chicken, uh, some beautiful organic chicken that we got. Um, very simple, easy. Um, you know, 45 minutes. Yeah, some beautiful roasted chicken, rice, some vegetables. It was a very simple dinner last night. That's what we had. Today, I'm having abgusht. Oh, um, as we're, okay. Uh, as we're talking, is cooking slowly um, in my off in, in my kitchen at the office. You, you know what's great about talking to somebody who is a this well-known, award-winning chef? Just even at the top of the interview here, it's clear that you love food, don't you? You 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 really <laughs> love, love this. Food. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I love. I mean, I love to eat. Uh, what can I tell you? I love to cook. I love to eat. I love to watch people cook. Um, I, I guess I've been really blessed um, to find uh, a path in my life that it's a hobby and at the same time it's a source of revenue. Well, let's get to that. Let's get to both of those things, the hobby and the source of revenue. I mean, you mentioned being in isolation. It's it's no secret, Hamid, that the global pandemic has been devastating for restaurants and the food industry. You had just opened a cool restaurant on Granville Island in uh, Vancouver with three other well-known chefs a couple of years ago. And the companies I know that you own in manufacturing food products are 90% targeted for food services. So I have to assume you've been hit quite hard by this COVID-19 era. Is that correct? Yes, it hasn't been easy, that's for sure. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, especially going in, um, you know, uh, you know, you have great sales and all of a sudden you have nothing. <laughs> it's like someone, um, you know, just uh, clicked the switch, the power just went off, right? So that's uh -huh. what it was. Um, I mean, we had an idea it's coming, but like, I mean, like no one knew that I mean, I shouldn't have said we, I guess we were a little bit naive. We didn't know how bad it's going to get, like how it's going to close up. But it, it closed up pretty fast. Um, so, the, you know, I guess you have no choice to uh, act on that and uh, get ready for a little roller coaster. What's the status of your restaurant now? Um, luckily, we opened up last week, Thursday. That was our first day back up. Uh, we closed the um, uh, second week, I think, the second week of April, and we just opened up. And uh, we opened we opened up just takeout only on Thursday at Grabbin Island. Um, and uh, to be to be honest with you, I spoke to a couple of guys um, who have shops on the island, and they were mentioning um, the sales are really low because it's there's not a whole lot of um, guests are coming down. Mm -hmm. But um, we were quite surprised. Um, we uh, we had a lot of uh, local. Uh, guests 
coming down and supporting us. And last week, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, which was rainy, people were coming down. And sun, this Sunday was uh, unreal, unreal. Uh, we were extremely happy with uh, support. Meaning, the, meaning you could so, make a business out of takeout? Um, no, but, but I mean, compared to last year's sales, it's, 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 it's a quarter, but, uh, it means that we're going to be able to, you know, um, have staff on board, pay the bills, um, and hopefully not to lose money. Mm. Uh, does that make sense or not? I mean, right now everyone's just trying to stop the bleeding, right? I think every restaurant is trying to stop, um, as much as possible. Well, you, you've suggested that. The whole game is being rewritten. That's a quote from you when it comes to restaurants and food services. What do you mean by that? Um, well, there's a restaurant in Copenhagen named uh, Noma. The chef is in Zappi. He's one of yeah. the best chefs in the world. Yeah. Um, I personally look up to him. I look up to what he does and his team do. Um, and, um, you know, this is a restaurant that, you know, it's been number one for many, many years. They're, they just opened up last week um, their pa- uh, their garden, and they're doing uh, they're turning to a wine bar and a burger joint just wow. to get it up and running. So yeah, the game is rewriting itself. I mean, no one really knows um, how long it's going to last. You know, um, no one really knows the future. You know, if people want to have fine dining, um, are able to have fine dining or not? How is that going to look like? When is it going to time that restaurants can, you know, fully operate, uh, not at 25 or 50 or 80% capacity? Um, so it will change. It definitely is going to change how people are going to operate and uh, what they need to do to, um, you know, to float and maybe make some profit. At the same time, I guess people people want their they're great restaurants uh, as well to a certain extent. I mean, uh, where you're located, where that restaurant you're talking about that you own is located at Granville Island. If I remember correctly, not a lot of people live on Granville Island. You have to kind of go out of your way to go there. So yeah. it's not like there's people walking by, uh, you know, on a, on a, um, a busy residential thoroughfare or, or something like that. So the fact that a lot of people were coming for takeout is, is a good sign, I suppose. Right. Yeah. They're coming They're They're coming to support us and we are extremely grateful. And believe it or not, I do the same, right? Uh, my wife and I, we, we do the same. We're trying to um, do takeout in our favorite restaurants. Um, if everybody does it, um, it will help to support a little bit um, these restaurants. And hopefully, uh, with everyone's support, they're able to, um, you know, better through the storm. I mean, I want to get to your your story, but let me just stick with this whole game being rewritten for a second because you're the first chef or uh, restaurant owner or, or person in the food business that we've had on on Rook so far. And, uh, you know, I have a friend who's a professor teaching about service and uh, the service in the food industry. Uh, she's actually one of our Rook team members as well. And she she says they're struggling right now for, the, for next year's curriculum because... <laughs> And I know you teach as well, because they don't know what yes. the industry is going to look like. They don't even know what they're supposed to be teaching about. Uh, what 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 would you say to her? What should she be teaching when it comes to the food industry? Um, I honestly don't know her curriculum, uh, but I can speak about my curriculum. Um, the teaching is changing. Um, you know, when it comes to cooking, yes, you can show someone how to peel an onion, to dice an onion, to cook an onion. At the end of the day, that person needs to slice and dice and cook the onions, right? So we can teach the theory, um, but when it comes down to actually cooking it, we do need that one-on-one um, time to be able to make sure that person picks up that knowledge. But also, if somebody was, say, going to college for restaurant management, uh, yes. you, you know, <laughs> what what kind of restaurant are they going to be managing in, in say, 2021? That's the question, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I mean, That's what's a the big question? Yeah. yeah, that, that is, you know, that, that is, I think that will, I think that's going to change restaurant to restaurant. I mean, what kind of uh, service they were providing before and how they want to change it to, them to do the, to, to do this type of service. I mean, if you had a 500 seat restaurant and you can only have 50 people, well, then you can, I guess you can only open up part of your restaurant that can people sit two meters apart and, you know, you can't have the full crew. You got to have, Minimal crew, but then again, you still have to have the heavy investment in the first part 
to make sure that you have enough people there to direct traffic for cleaning up, sanitizing, making sure that your customers are safe, your employees are safe. Um, but if you, had a, is, if you had an erstwhile 500-seat restaurant and, you're, and now you're letting in 50 people, uh, that's not really a business model, is it? I mean, that, you're not going to stay no, alive. No, it's not. No. It's honestly, it's not. It's, it is not. Um, I feel for a lot of people, we are going to lose more money by opening up than actually staying closed. Right. And even as a chef, I mean, when it comes to, say, social distancing, like what does six feet apart mean in a kitchen when the chefs and sous chefs and cooks and everyone are constantly moving around and pretty much getting tangled up, right? Uh, have you, have I mean, you thought about one that? Thing we've done, we got everybody face masks, uh, like a shield, and we're trying to keep our social distance as much as possible. We downsize the menu to a point that it's not heavy prep, so this way... Um, we can keep very minimum people in the kitchen. So those are some of the changes that we've done. And also, you know, before we would, you know, if someone would have to cross through, that is no more cross through. You know, you finish the bag, you put it in this place, next person picks it up, puts it in the next place, and the other person comes and picks it up. So what does that do? That means you have to have, um, you know, you can't, you can't go as fast, um, pace as you did before. Um, things are going to take a little longer. Um, but hey, that's, that's what it is. Like you have not a choice. Um, you have to protect your crew and you have to protect your customer. You know, Hamid, when I, uh, when I called you before this interview and I, I knew that you're, you're in the food business and you're, you know, uh, about your restaurant and, and, and you, uh, and I, so I assumed this was not the greatest time, uh, business wise, uh, due to this pandemic. And I asked how you're doing. And I said, if I asked if you're scared of what's happening and you said something interesting, you said, I'm not scared because I've seen my parents rebuild, uh, and it's in our blood to be able to do this. You suggested that Iranians somehow know how to deal with any adversity at this point and realize that life can continue. It was both a, a beautiful, uh, and inspiring and, and telling thing to say, tell me about that. Um, <laughs> Yes, um, you know, when you ask the question, like, you know, uh, do I stay up at night, worry about what's going to happen? Um, to be honest with you, I try not to think of the worst case scenario, right? Uh, when I when we have to rewrite our business plan, um, you know, nine weeks ago, of course, I wrote a business plan for a nice case. The worst case scenario, best case scenario, and medium. Then we can write our business plan, okay, what do we need to do? How can we be able to pass through this time? Um, so we're trying to, I, what I was trying to do, I was trying to say, okay, um, this will pass. You have to stay strong. You have to stay positive. Um, obviously, you got to know what you need to work on and just plan, you know, push through. You know, I've seen, like as I mentioned, I've seen um, my parents, um, you know, the, during the revolution, they've, you know, my dad lost um, quite a bit of his, um, what he owned. <laughs> And then again, um, during the war, coming to Canada and starting again, I've seen them restarted. And life goes on. I mean, as it goes, I can only speak for myself. I know um, we will rebuild if anything needs to be rebuilt. At the same time, I know I will not. I personally will not let anything go down. I will put. I will give my hundred percent to make sure um, we survive this, right? And luckily, I have partners that they're on the same page you know um yes this is hard time but we're going to survive it we're going to be very very open about it knowing that what we need to do what we need to achieve to make it through and uh, yeah that's that's pretty much it like uh, i guess in a way it's it's an entrepreneur mentality right sometimes mm -hmm. it takes three four businesses for you to have a very successful business it's um, a survivor's somehow. mentality you, it's a survivor. Yeah, mentality. you just go back and just do it and do it and do it till you get it right. You could overcome the revolution and the war and and a and a pandemic as well. Then, right? Why why not? Yeah, we will. I mean, all of us. I mean, it's a, it's a really tough time for everybody. It is a really tough time. Even even for people who don't own businesses, right? People, you know, all of a sudden, like they have to go and get the CBR, like two thousand bucks a month. Um, they have mortgages, car payments, they have all these expenses, you know, the rent in Vancouver is like so much, like one bedroom apartment couldn't go up to 2000 bucks or more. 
um, yeah, it's very it's tough for everybody. It, it is a tough time for sure. You mentioned your parents, so take me back to how cooking and food became your obsession. You attribute this to your mother, which will come as little surprise to those of us who know how fabulous our Persian mom's dishes are. What what are your <laughs> earliest memories of becoming intoxicated by your mom's cooking in Iran? Oh, my mom loved to cook. Let me tell you, she she was like what you know what do we call here a true foodie. That was my mom, right? Um, when we every summer that we went to Europe, uh, we would stop at you know when when I went out with my mom, our stops would be at pastry shops, restaurants. <laughs> um, that she was she was she really loved cooking. She loved learning um, different cuisines. She really loved. Um, the, obviously the pastry world in Europe and at home um, she she was a fantastic cook and uh, between I mean every everyone's mom is a fantastic cook for sure I'm not going to say that but in our family like my mom's knowing like okay she's Massey Jones got the best cooking mm-hmm. when she was with us and and honestly I, I think the seed seed of cooking and loving food was planted by my mom right her teachings um, you know, say, hey, look at this piece of bread, look at this piece of pastry, talking about what's good, but, you know, what could be better. And when it comes to cooking in the kitchen, even, even when she, she would cook, let's say we were in up north in our villa, she would be cooking and, you know, it's just us. Like she would always take it seriously. Um, you know, how would she like, how would she allow her prep? How would she would cook the things? How would she would finish it? Um, she would, like that part was extreme. Um, it was, it's taken very seriously, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was her, her teachings to me. And then obviously I love to eat even as a child. So mm-hmm. I would get in there and help, um, uh, if it's clean some fallow beans or, you know, peel some garlic or, or clean some beans, whatever it may be. And the other part was that, um, they, at the point I didn't appreciate it, but now I appreciate it a lot. Uh, they wanted to, they wanted to teach mom and dad want to teach us the the value of life value of you know money and everything else so every day for an hour we had to hang out in the, uh, with the gardeners in the garden and uh, help to you know work on us help to um, plant seeds you water, you would you actually plants. wouldn't you wouldn't get your allowance unless you spent no. an hour each day in the garden right it was so mean, I tell you. <laughs> so what? What did that? What did that experience teach you? Um, well, what they told me, it taught me. Now you know the value of money, <laughs> and money doesn't fall from the sky <laughs> or doesn't grow on a tree. Uh, but actually, I think what it taught me was um, um, how nice it is to have a beautiful cucumber, um, you know, right on the garden, or or just take the beans and um, have some beautiful herbs. Mm-hmm. Um, that those flavors are still in my head. Like, like if I have a, if I go to a farm and pick up a cucumber, I close my eyes. I feel like I'm in Killert, uh, which is in Mazandaran. Um, I don't know how to explain that. I can feel the, I can feel the the wind going through me. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the memories that I think I built about food. Um, spending that time in the garden, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, my mom loved strawberries, and my dad planted a. A pretty big. Uh, I mean, uh, back then I didn't think it was a very big area to grow strawberries. Now that I visit a lot of farms, I'm like, wow, that was a pretty decent size of of a field that was dedicated to strawberries. And used to go in the morning, pick strawberries with her. And every day when I get up and um, I want to have uh, breakfast, well, you want breakfast? No problem. Go go and uh, pick the wow. eggs from the chicken coop and bring it in, and I'll cook it up for you. And yeah, <laughs> Hollywood. Maybe um, you know, at, at the beginning, like, ah, oh, I gotta go pick the eggs. You know, you go get the eggs, and you know, sometimes you have to fight the rooster to get in, but uh, you have to move quickly before the. the sometimes they like to eat the eggs themselves, right? Um, and then I would bring it, and and it's unreal when when you when you cook an egg that was just picked, um, the way the whites is, the way the yolk is, you know, it's unreal. Like when I was at the at the Metropolitan Hotel. I want to share that experience, uh, like how fresh the eggs could be. Um, so we were able to only do it for like Saturdays, maybe Sundays, um, have uh, far, like super farm fresh eggs. One of my friends who own an organic farm in Richmond, um, 
for the apple orchards, they would have chickens running. So this way they wouldn't have to use any pesticides, anything like that. So I would, he would set aside all his eggs and once a week I would get the eggs. And you know, you, you cook three eggs, they're all different colors, right? Mm. But I, I, until you have it, until you have it, you don't know how great it is. You know, I have to just, I, I just have to correct you on something, uh, just a factual thing. As, um, as, as great as your fabulous uh, mother's cooking was, um, it's not better than my mother's. Uh, just to, uh, <laughs> just, right. to, just to be very I clear, <laughs> uh, I just, I just want. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. I, I just want to. I just. I'm just speaking in straight facts now. You know. Uh, That's right. You know. I, I, and and this is what I love about uh, our Persian uh, cuisine. You know, and and we all have so much pride in our food. Yes. Did Did you have a favorite dish as a kid that your mom would make? Yeah, it was uh, my 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 all time favorite was uh, fish in June. And Pusin uh, Jun was like like that da dish, da dish that uh, I would go crazy about. Um, she wouldn't cook it often because obviously, uh, you know, she wanted us to eat too much fat. Um, but yeah, Fes and June was my all-time favorite. I'm with you. Sure. I'm with. I'm with you on the Fes yeah. and June, man. So you end up moving to Canada with your family, and then you decide to try cooking as a career. Were you concerned that? That might not be the kind of career like engineer or doctor that a good Iranian boy is supposed to pursue. Um, yeah, everyone, you know, definitely uh, uh, the family, the family, every Persian family wants their kids to be doctors and lawyers and engineers, right? For sure. Um, uh, when I went with the idea to my parents, hey, I want to go to cooking school. It wasn't well received at all. <laughs> um, at all. Even though, um, you know. Uh, Even the I, citrus like, orchards and all that didn't help? It didn't uh, the, No, the, mom's like, you're going to have a tough life. You know, mm. I'm, I'm going to support you, whatever you want to do, but uh, you're going to have a tough life. You, you know, you have to work uh, when people are enjoying their Sundays and Saturdays and Friday nights. You know, you, you're the one who has to be in the kitchen cooking for them, right? Um, your life will not be like, you know, she was worried it's not going to be super normal, right? Um, it was a bit of pushback, not going to lie to you. However, um, that changed really fast uh, once they saw how I fell in love with cooking. And, uh, yeah, they were extremely supportive through the years. And, uh, yeah. I mean, and, yeah by, and by the mid-2000s, you become known in Vancouver as one of the top, top chefs around. And you f your focus is French food. Why did you gravitate towards French cuisine? Um, at, the, at the time when I started, when I, at the time when I wanted to go cooking school and uh, start cooking, I mean, that was a while back. And that time, uh, you know, it's French cuisine was like known to be the best cuisine um, in the world, right? When it comes to refined cooking, that is. And if you, and if you really want to get, if you really want to move forward um, in your cooking career back then, you had to be a great French chef, uh, someone that could cook French food really well. Um, I mean, that's 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 how I saw it, um, talking to people around of me. And everyone said, you know, you start your cooking here, and then you're going to go to France, you're going to spend a few years in France, and you're going to work in the kitchens, and then you're going to come back. That was that was the deal. Um, through time, that changed, right? Through time, that changed. Uh, but that's how that's how I saw it. Well, Vancouver Community College, when I went to as a student, they taught uh, basic French cooking. From that on, uh, when I was in a cooking school, I got a job at a, at a hotel in Vancouver, which back then was uh, uh, one of the three uh, five-star hotels, the Five Diamond Hotels in Canada, which was Sutton Place Hotel. Yeah, the Sutton Place. And yeah. the chef there just just arrived from France. Um, the only places he ever worked in his life was three Michelin star restaurants. <laughs> That's the only. That was it. That's the only thing he knew. Uh, Kyle Irvin. Man, he was a really tough guy to work for, but um, he was tough. He was really tough, but it was fair. He was fair, you know. Um, he would definitely try to teach you as much as you want to learn. You have to work for it, but he would teach you. Did you ever think of opening an Iranian restaurant? Yes, of course. Uh, I have thought about it numerous times uh, to open up. I still want to open a Persian restaurant. Um, yeah, I really want to finish that journey for sure. Um, I, I wouldn't do it right now. 
<laughs> right. In, where we are. It's on hold for moment, a little bit. But, yeah. but definitely in the future, I would love to open a Persian restaurant, uh, an Iranian restaurant to share our cuisine and heritage to every, with everybody. I mean, tell, tell me how you fuse Persian accents or culinary treats into French cuisine or vice versa, because you mentioned Fes and June, uh, which was your, you said was your favorite as a kid, but um, I've read that you actually have a special way, in fact, that you make Fes and June or, or that you integrate elements of the way you make Persian food into French cuisine. How exactly does that work? What does that look like and taste like? Um, uh this goes back to quite a few years ago. We were we were having a conversation with a few friends. They're all foodies and they're Iranian foodies, and they were talking about like, oh, we love Fasin June, but how do you present Fasin June to be as elegant looking as, as a, <laughs> right. a French restaurant? Right. Um, right. It doesn't and, look the and, greatest to, to non Fasin June uh, aware people, right? <laughs> Sometimes they don't understand, right? And how uh, can have it like have this true meaning, depth of flavor? What you know, and how is it? And I say, you know what, guys, we can do it. We uh, our our food is extremely delicious. Yes, we have influenced many different cultures and cuisines around of us, and Iran has been influenced by many uh, cultures and cuisines around of itself as well. However, we can have a fish in June that was we would serve at a three-star restaurant. We look, uh, we look as amazing as every other dish in that restaurant. But at the same time, when a person's eating it, it is what truly fish in June is, right? Still, nothing has been taken away or added. So one thing I did was uh, I took on this, you know, this thing. I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to recreate the dishes, and and the thing is, I'm not going to change the dish. Uh, if there's an ingredient that is not in a fish in June, I'm not going to put in a fish in June. I'm going to make fish in June, and and that's how it is. Okay. But then and then becomes with knowledge that you have about cooking. How can you make the fish in June extremely intense with a little amount that you're putting on a plate that it speaks for fish in June? How can you cook the duck legs to have the fish in June flavors, but at the same time have a beautiful presentation? Um, and basically, I use my my French uh, cooking techniques and modernist techniques. And, uh, and implemented Persian dishes. And every Persian dish that I've done that in, and, I, and I showcased, uh, I kept it um, ex- extremely traditional flavors. I didn't change it. You know, if it didn't have spinach, I'm not gonna put spinach in it, right? Um, so keep it traditional, traditional, but yet modern look. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, it was a lot of trial and error, it's not gonna lie to you. Like, like making gourmet sabzi, like it's and make it look beautiful. It's it's, it's not easy. It, 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 you know, it, it took me like at least seven, eight times, uh, making sure that because it's such a mouth feel. Like it has to have that mouth feel. Yeah. Right. It ha- it can't be too rich because because we don't reduce stocks. Like we don't make juice, right? So the stock can't be too reduced. At the same time, it has to have that, you know, flavors of limonamani without bitterness. It has to have that acid. Um, it has to have the aromas of the herbs and still needs to have that freshness of a braised piece of meat. How do you achieve all that into a foam? Um, so it, it does it does take a little bit I, of I make thing. a pretty good korma sabzi, you know. I love it. I do. I, and I do it from Next scratch. Next time we're together, because I, 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 I don't cheat by going to you know Super Korak and getting the sabzi already done. You know, I, I, it's all I make it from scratch. And but I know that it's very controversial. Like I made a korma sabzi that I put some, uh, you know, I spiced it up a little bit. Like I put some uh, hot peppers and and um, and my mom was like, oh you know. So I know it's you got to be careful with uh, <laughs> with the changes you might you might make. You know. Yeah, and my mom was like that too. Like it's just like yeah. I guess I guess part of it is my mom's. I'm like, if you're going to make a dish, and that is the dish. Like yes, you want to get creative and all that. Then it's that not the dish. It's a different dish. But if you're gonna call it, it you know, it can't or It has to be that dish. Don't mess with it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So- <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it's gonna be a riot outside. <laughs> so do you do the opposite as well, like with um, French cuisine? Have you ever slipped in uh, some saffron or pomegranate or some kind of Persian accent into a French dish? Yes, I have. <laughs> I have. 
years ago uh, when I used to do my, uh, we used to do our doxyju. Um, I would put a little bit of saffron and cardamom in it, um, and um, I would steep it with some uh, orange zest, uh, orange peel. Um, it's not a it's not a traditional way to finish a, a, a sauce like that. Um, the the orange is, but not the cardamom and saffron, but just a little bit of pieces. Um, it just give it a different aroma. Nothing that is too forward, but it's really, really back. I'm there, I have played a bit, but then again, um, I've always tried to making sure that dish um, pairs very well with the wine that the sommelier wants to serve with the dish. Um, because in French cuisine, you know, it's just not about the food. It's, it's right. about the whole experience, food and wine. And ensuring like we don't put anything in that dish that is going to kill the wine that the sommelier is recommending to be served. Hamid, in, in this this whole conversation is making me hungry, but I guess that's part of what you do, right? You just you, you start talking about these savory things, and I uh, you get yeah, people excited. My, my my life is a bit boring. It's just eating, eating. <laughs> Doesn't sound like boring at all. It sounds it sounds fantastic. <laughs> Listen, in in twenty thirteen, uh, you were declared Vancouver's best chef, the best chef in the city. What did that mean to you? Oh, it meant a lot because that award was um, gi- uh, given by my peers, um, the Georgia Strait. They they call numerous restaurants and chefs and restaurateurs and and uh, there's a numerous questions they ask for giving awards and uh, the, I was nominated by my colleagues, which was it meant really a lot to me. Not gonna lie to you. I mean, I mean everybody everybody wants to be recognized, obviously, and um, and and to to have that award announced, it really meant a lot. Um, it was it was a very special moment, uh, uh, and also for for the crew that I work with, uh, for all of us in the kitchen, it was a very very um, memorable moment. You're such a friendly and seemingly humble guy. How how competitive are you as a chef? Do you do you? Do you, I mean, you can be, be rooked, Dige. You know, if you do you wake up every day and go, I want to be the best, I want to be better than the guy down the street who has that fancy restaurant or bistro? Um, no, <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> um, it's weird. Like, if, if I put on my jacket, my chef jacket, right, and you know, I wear my clothes and I step in the kitchen, um, I just want to serve the best food I can serve that day. Uh, it's just, the way we are taught, um, you know, and um, I've I've done cooking competition for many many years. Obviously, if you've done cooking competitions for many many years, you have that in yourself that you want to be the best. Yeah. Um, and you want to win. Um, one thing, you know, at the beginning, it was like, yeah, I want to, like, I want to be like the number one, this that. Then later on, you find out the only person you need to beat is yourself. That's the only one you're competing against. You're competing against yourself. Um, how can you be the best person, right? Mm. If I start thinking uh, what someone else is doing, how can I be better than them? Then my my focus is not in the right place. And that's what I teach for people to compete. You know, you're competing with yourself. I know there's 12 other people in here, but you're in your own bubble. You you are you are. The only competitor here. But you do compete and you win those gold medals. I, I, I'm going to ask you about leading the culinary team Canada to uh, eight gold medals at the Culinary Olympics over the years. What does that mean to you? And I don't, I, I never want to overemphasize our dual identity, you know, but at the end of the day, you are a guy who grew up in Iran and here you are leading Team <laughs> Team Canada to gold medals. Tell me about that, what that means to you. Uh, uh, the the first the first medal that I won uh, it was uh, 2002 in Luxembourg. I, I did an individual entry with Team BC, um, and I was really really fortunate to have amazing mentors here in Vancouver. There's a chef named Dave Ryan who's been a, a mentor of mine. Um, uh, chef uh, Bruno Marti. There's quite a few of them um, here that I've been really got really fortunate right at the beginning. Um, I, I kind of met these beautiful people and they took me under their arm and they taught me how to be a competitor, right? Competitor cooking is a little bit different from restaurant cooking. Um, it's like every second of your time is is looked under a microscope. 
and it was a it was an avenue to be able to travel um, to Europe and cook with European chefs, and um, and it was and it was an opportunity to be part of a team, uh, and you know have built great relationship friends for future. Um, it was it was the 2002. I mean, uh, like, to be able to get a gold medal was unreal. I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, and then three years, uh, you know, all I thought was like win, 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 especially like apprentice year competition, every other competition that it was, uh, like winning the apprenticeship competition. That was a that was a highlight for sure. And then after after a while, you find out, you know, like honestly, like if if you want to succeed and if you really want to win, um, the only person you're competing is yourself and uh, focusing on what you want to do and, and what message you want for your judges to get from what you're serving. And in cooking competitions like that, beside that, there's a whole lot of other, um, like r- rules, regulations you need to follow to be able to collect the points. And at the end, it all comes down to the taste as well. Um, yeah, I mean... I, I hate losing, not going to lie to you, um, but uh, I've learned to look at, you know, times that you lose, you look at it as a learning and then uh, how you can break it down and what you can do different next time. That was an easy lesson, not going to lie to you. <laughs> you know, despite all your acclaim, uh, you're not pretentious about food. You, you've been, I mean, you've been the chief chef at, at these fancy hotels. You, I mean, you mentioned earlier the Sutton Place, the five-star hotel, you, the Matt. You, you've also been the guy promoting a fried chicken dish at, at a chain restaurant called Earl's that you do consulting for. Tell me about that, this populist approach to food and whether you think uh, some, some chefs are too prejudicial or judgmental when it comes to <laughs> more popular kinds of comfort foods. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, everyone has their everyone has their own point of view and uh, they look at food. I love a good fried chicken. I love an amazing burger. Uh, you know, I really love a beautiful roasted flour and truffles as well too. Um, yeah, uh, I can only speak for myself. Um, years ago, I was watching a, a documentary with Anthony Bourdain. He was in a restaurant in uh, Spain uh, named Albuli. Um, and uh, he, the chef there, and I was friend Adrian, and they were in their test kitchen, and they were talking about, you know, the, the one of the chefs to sear the piece of peach, and uh, and sear a piece of overall, and they're eating it, and the peach was unreal. Like Anthony Bourdain was like blown away, and they were talking about value, like what's the value of a peach? Uh, mm-hmm. Why is, or is peach is not valued the same as a overall? You know, why is a, a you know. A little piece of truffle can go for 400 bucks and, uh, you know, for $400, you can get a couple of cases of chickens, you know, yeah. why, why is it one has more value than others? Um, end of the day, I, I, I don't really care what I cook. Uh, what I do really care is how I choose the ingredients, and if that makes sense or not. Um, uh, as long as I'm using, like, the best ingredients um, that is possible, I'm happy to cook anything. Um, you know, it's, it's been source of sustainability. Um, and, uh, yeah, a good fried chicken is a, is a great experience. Now, <laughs> um, a beautiful sandwich, it's, it's beautiful as well too. Right. Um, today, uh, for breakfast, I had some dates, I had some beautiful pecorino and a lavash, like that was delicious too. Um, right. So. Wow, you can take yeah. the you can take the boy out of Iran, but you can't take the Iran out of the boy. He's lavash <laughs> and, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I I use pecorino today, which is which is unreal. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this: Iranians take a lot of pride in our cuisine and our palates. What what is? It's not an easy question, maybe, but what is the key to being a great cook when you're making Persian food? Oh, my God, I. Truly, patience. <laughs> you have to have patience. You can't rush Persian food. You can't rush it. You know, um, you know, we eat a lot of choresht, right? And you can't rush it. Uh, we eat a lot of plo, and you can't rush it either, right? Um, and you know, when you look at like a lot of people that cook at home, uh, they spend hours prepping and then and then cooking and then serving. Especially like every time when you go to someone's house or your house, like no one does just one dish; they do three, four dishes. Um, and one thing I've learned at like cooking traditional Persian food, um, you have to have patience. You have to block off the time. You have to have. You have to organize yourself. 
uh, making sure you have all your ingredients. And, uh, and Persian cooking is it is very complex, but yet it is very simple, right? Like it's very simple in, in processing it. And you have to follow the steps. You know, you know if, you don't, if you don't follow those basic steps in a way it's meant to be followed, you're not going to end up with the result. That There's no fast track to Albalu Palo. Palo. No, There's no, no, it's not. I mean, yes, you can put the you can put the upgush in a pressure cooker if you want. Um, you know, it will finish, but it's still nicer to let it go slowly uh, for a longer time. It's, it's just you end up with a much better, deeper. Well, well, that's perfect. You, 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 you led me to exactly where I wanted to end off. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. What is the what is the status of the abgust right now? Where how is it's the abgust doing? I because can smell it right now. I'm worried that we took you away from the abgust and that somehow something's gone wrong. Yeah, it's it's good. It's gone slow. I have two smells here. I've I've uh, made some beautiful uh, rose petal syrups and some dehydrated rose petals and abgust. So it's a mixed flavor, mixed aromas right now. In my kitchen. <laughs> By the way, Abgust is there? Abgust is a little more liberal in terms of what you you can kind of put anything into Abgust, right? Or does there, is there strict rules around what Abgust is? Ah, uh, that's a touchy one for everybody. Um, <laughs> but for myself, for, for myself, I have I have some uh, lamb neck that I picked up, mm. um, and chickpeas and and turmeric and tomato paste and tomatoes and onions and garlic and stone dry lime. And then uh, some people like to put potatoes, some don't. Uh, some people like to put other legumes inside. It just changes to where you at. Um, you know, main ingredients you gotta have uh, some lamb fat inside. You know, and, uh, but we can't really get dombe here, so I try to use some of the lamb fat from the neck um, just to make sure it has this beautiful charby. Hey man, uh, that uh, I wish I could come over for some abgust right now with the lavash. You, you, you got it all set. You got it all set already. <laughs> Thank you so much for this today. Uh, I'm glad so that you're much. staying Thank okay, and um, and uh, I can't wait for this thing to open up. Uh, hopefully, the world to open up again so that we can come and enjoy your your tasty uh, creations again in Vancouver and anywhere uh, else where you, you might send them out to us. Thank you so much for calling. It was a pleasure um, and, and love to see you in person. And, uh, and I'm hoping that this thing will end soon and we all can get back to our normal lives. Thanks, Sammy John. Best to you and your family. Talk to you that's Chef Hamid Salimian, gold medalist, restaurant owner, abgust enthusiast. He joined us from Vancouver, Canada today. about that Hamid Salimian Shaya are you hungry yet <laughs> yes 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 I need food <laughs> you can say that again yeah yeah, yeah. a couple weeks ago uh, you guys we put out the call for any musicians or musical artists and performers uh, who've been listening to Rook to do their version of our theme song right so yeah. it was no matter what your genre is if you play the the kazoo or the guitar or the or the piano uh Give us your version of the theme song if you want, and then we'll 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 play it. Uh, and by all means, keep these submissions coming. Info at rookmedia.com is where to send them. So we've received a few submissions now, and we're going to start playing them uh, on on our shows. So uh, I want to play you one of our submissions right now. This is one of the first ones we got, and it's pretty special. So so Shia, yes. play a little. So this is from a, 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 a an Iranian Canadian musician lyricist and producer named Kambiz Mirzai. I don't know Kambiz, but um, I'm very grateful for him sending this in. He's he's a, a musician, lyricist, and producer, and also full-time clinical informatics pharmacist. Ooh. That's like oh. a very classic Ooh. Iranian. Yeah, totally. He, it's not enough to be the overachiever as a musician, lyricist, and producer. It's also, uh, he's a pharmacist as well. So let's play a little bit of Kambi's Mirzai, Mirzai's version 
of the theme song of Rook. It's very, it's with the, it's very Henry Mancini, oh, totally. yeah, you know, the Pink yeah, Panther true, with the yeah. sax. <laughs> it's really good. Um, Kamviz Mirzai immigrated to Canada in 1997. He's worked with many local and LA-based talents. Finished a couple of his own music projects, called like one called The Lost Ambient, an album produced and published last year. And his lyrics and music have been featured by vocalists like Shahzad Sepanlu and Farmaz Aslani. Kambi's Mirzai. That's great. Yeah, I, awesome. I like it. I really I enjoyed that. Yeah. He's got the counter melody there with the, the horns, and I wonder if that's him playing the sax. I guess we have to find out more about this uh this mystery man, uh, probably not a mystery man. He's probably well known for, uh, I'm sure, in many circles. Kambiz Mirzai, thank you for your submission for the uh, Rook theme. Shia, what would you think? I really love the, the musicality of saxophone. You know, it's very soulful and mm. it's not bop, bop, bop. It's very not a popular instrument in yeah. contemporary music anymore. Mm. What happened to the saxophone? <laughs> that can be a title for a documentary. That's right. What happened to the saxophone? There's a saxophone and dang show, however. Have you heard of them, Reza? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've become a huge fan since, <laughs> since I met Shia. <laughs> okay, so thank you again to Kambiz Cam- Mirzai. Uh, and, uh, and keep those sub- submissions coming. We'll play them. Uh, info at rookmedia.com. We will also, for sure, when we get our website up, we will create a section where we have the theme songs so that people can hear different versions and uh, maybe they can even remix them on our website. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. Great. Let's get a website first, but yeah. then also <laughs> have an area where they can remix songs. <laughs> okay, let me get to this week's letters. Uh, you can post your comments on our YouTube site. SoundCloud or on our Facebook page, Instagram. So episode nine last week of Rook featured Shiva Nagar, who has become an actress doing great work in Hollywood. And her journey from Iran through Turkey to Canada and now Los Angeles. This from Sirus Rahimi Alukare says, Gian, this program is going to have a big impact on Iranians. Uh, great job. And then he says, need any help? Please let me know. Wow. I mean, That's sweet. we can use all your help. Thank you so much for that, Sirus. That was on YouTube. Also, uh, Mojgan in Toronto says, while I was listening to this episode with Shiva, my daughter told me, Mommy, you know what? Someday I, w- I will be interviewed by well-known hosts because of my talent and success in the music field on Broadway. I love it. That's amazing. Our love to your daughter, Mojgan. Episode 10, as I mentioned earlier in this program, featured Hamid Nikpay, and we've got uh, so many comments about this one. Um, Hamed, of course, the the amazing fusion vocalist, instrumentalist, and composer who really opened up. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this interview, um, love you, I'd love you to check it out. This from Basil's Angels. Basil's Angels on YouTube says, Hamed Nikpay is one of the best musicians of the fusion style. Thank you for this interview. Heart, 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 heart. Turaj Yusufi. 
on Facebook says, thank you for this great interview. It was one of the rockest interviews so far. A few people mentioned that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, it really defined Rook in terms of how candid Hamed was. But I want to give the letter of the week to this that came into our mailbox at info at rookmedia.com. Uh, this is from um, Dr. Siavash Atrian, and this is from Kelowna, British Columbia. It's in the BC interior in Canada. Uh, this is a long letter, so I, I want to give you an edited version of it, um, if you don't mind that, uh, Dr. Siavash. Uh, I just really appreciate this. This is, uh, it says, Hi, Gian, thank you and your team for this fantastic program. Rook is not just connecting to me as a first-generation immigrant, but it does also connect to the second generation, like my son, who was born in Vancouver and is currently studying at UBC. Many of us went through lots of hardship and challenges to get settled in our new home, and we suffered to prove ourselves, regardless of the type of profession we do. I listened to what you said about the rationale you made for this program. This is a, a difficult time for all Iranians. As soon as there are some good news, uh, some news to boost our image. We lift our head and proudly say, I am Iranian or of Iranian descent. And that was the case in the case of the Ukrainian flight story and many other stories. The other example is, the co is COVID-19. As a doctor, I feel extremely proud of being part of the frontline uh, people to help. And this also makes many Iranian doctors feel comfortable to proudly talk about their origin these days. This will retrospectively improve our motherland's image. I hope you get my point. I mean, any good news, achievements, and so on does and will improve the image. That's why your program is a window for English-speaking citizens to take a look inside the Iranian diaspora and better understand the image. Thanks for doing this. Um, thank you so much for that, Dr. Siavash Atrion. He goes on to say one last thing. One of the challenges of all the Iranian diaspora is the question, should I call myself Iranian? Or he says, for example, in my case, Canadian or Canadian-Iranian. I strongly believe that there is no right or wrong answer, but we shouldn't be pushed to choose. I love both Iran and Canada. Iran is my past with lots of good memories and things I've learned, and, uh, and, and I've learned Canada is my future to be built using my past good experience alongside with the current, current society's elements, including culture. There is no conflict between these two types of love. If we learn this, we will get along way better and something called, with something called the identity crisis. I hope to meet you in person sometime to talk more. Who knows in BC or in Kelowna? Kind regards, Dr. Siavash Atrion. So, uh, first of all, uh, Kelowna, by the way, is gorgeous. Um, have you guys you have you guys ever been to Kelowna? No, no, no. It's a, it's a beautiful. I mean, British Columbia in general is beautiful, but Kelowna is is one of the outstanding um, cities or towns of this this country. Uh, second, thank you so much for this thoughtful letter. It it means so much to our whole team. And um, Dr. Siavash, I I do hope hope I get to meet you one day in person. Thrilled to make your acquaintance this way, Dr. Siavash Atrion. You have the letter of the week. Let's go out on some folklore music from the Mazandaran region of Iran, where Chef Hamid said his family spent time. This is Aziz June. Thank you so much for listening today. Mizun Bashinah.